Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 33, No More Mr. Nice Guy. After being rebuffed in his royal ambitions at Trier in 1473, Charles the Bold became embroiled in a series of power struggles with neighbouring imperial lands during the final years of his life. In Upper Alsace, which the Duke of Austria, Sigismund, had mortgaged to him, Charles installed a man named Peter von Hagenbach as his bailiff, whose tyrannical tendencies united a coalition of Swiss and Alsatian towns, which teamed up with Sigismund, forming an anti-Burgundian alliance called the League of Constance. This coalition set about rejecting and ejecting the Burgundians from Upper Alsace. Basically, conditions conspired to continuously concern Charles and the League of Constance would contemptuously constrain his constant compulsions for control over consecutively connected constituencies. He also declared himself protector of Cologne, which was in revolt against its prince bishop, and set about laying siege to the rebellious town of Neuss. All of this so worried important sectors of the imperial nobility that war was declared on the Duke of Burgundy by the Emperor. Charles found himself faced with enemies on all fronts, and after almost a year of laying siege to Neuss, was forced to abandon it without success. His finances were in tatters and his prestige was diminished. But still, Charles had high hopes that he could turn his fortunes around. We last left our story in the previous episode at Trier in late 1473, with Charles the Bold and the Emperor Frederick III failing to reach an agreement in their negotiations for Charles to assume a royal title. You might remember that just before the Emperor hastily sailed away from Trier, a man named Peter von Hagenbach rowed out to his boat, imploring him to wait just a little longer so that Charles could come and see him off. Well, it's this guy, Peter von Hagenbach, who we will first talk about today. Hagenbach had been Charles's artillery commander during the destruction of Dinant, where he had impressed the Duke with his bravery, leading a charge on horseback during the middle of the day. After Charles bought the mortgage to Upper Alsatz from Sigismund of Habsburg, the Duke of Austria, he installed von Hagenbach as his bailiff there. If you're not sure where it is, Upper Alsace is a region along the western bank of the Upper Rhine River, right where the modern nations of France, Germany and Switzerland meet. Yes, we are getting even further away from the Netherlands than usual at this point, but this is where Charles's grandiose ambitions were leading him, so we're just going to have to deal with it. What Charles had actually gotten from Sigismund definitely can't be called the lordship of a single unified area since Alsace itself was actually divided up between various power brokers there. It was more that he'd just bought lots of little pieces of it. As legal scholar Gregory Gordon wrote, quote, His new possessions could be described as an archipelago of city-states, more or less accustomed to independence, given the absentee landlord role played by Sigismund while he was nominally in control. End quote. If you're wondering why we're quoting a legal scholar, by the way, we will get to that. Given how often we have already seen the disregard that Charles had towards the independence of towns, you might see where this is headed. 
When he bought this mortgage, Charles agreed not to arbitrarily impose any new taxes on those towns and also consented to the fact that Sigismund could take it all back at any time, as long as he stumped up the cash in full. So it was all kind of loose, but still, Charles had gotten a new friend in Sigismund and a few more titles to add to his growing collection. But Charles also bought the problems these areas were facing. This is all very complicated, and given that this is not the History of German Squabbles podcast, we are going to try and keep things as simple as possible. You might recall that Sigismund had mortgaged Upper Alsace to Charles in 1469 because he'd been fighting and losing against the Swiss, who had encroached on his lands, and Sigismund was now going broke due to paying them reparations. Switzerland, at this stage, was a growing patchwork of Confederate states, also known as the Eight Cantons. The primary aim behind the formation of such a confederacy had been to facilitate free movement of goods and easier trade, and it was dominated by the lower artisanal class. For our purposes, what the Swiss Confederation also provided was a body politic with which people in other towns and regions nearby, especially on the Rhine, could seek alliance and mutual protection against the ravages of the ruling noble elite. So the Swiss must have looked on warily as the Duke of Burgundy bailed out their enemy and started setting up shop on their border. The Rhine River was notorious for the presence of so-called robber barons across the region. These could be low-blood pirates, but were often castellans from the lower nobility who were in charge of the forts along the river's banks. They faced little scrutiny in their intimidation, theft, and exploitation of shipped goods on the river. When von Hagenbach was appointed bailiff of Upper Alsatz by Charles, he set about trying to wipe them out. According to Ruth Putnam, he had the motto, I spy, emblazoned on the liveries of his troops. Assumedly, this was to indicate his perceived omniscient power in the region. We would like to believe that really it was his favourite game to play when bored in the backseat of a carriage. I spy with my little eye, something beginning with... Ah, Robert Baron. Hagenbach's aggressive and dominating methods gained him few new friends during his first four years there, and the lands of Alsace actually came to be a big drain on the finances of the Burgundian state, which was already beginning to strain under the costs of all of Charles's military endeavours. Despite von Hagenbach's efforts, the incomes generated in Upper Alsace were much less than had been expected, and weren't even enough to actually cover the expenses incurred there. So money from other regions was being sent to Alsace and disappearing into a financial black hole. Von Hagenbach's reputation became notorious. On top of being the tax collector, it's bad enough, by no means everyone's favourite person going around, he also ignored the interests of the Swiss Confederacy, whose animosity had caused such trouble for Sigismund in the first place and he was just downright rude to them. Richard Vaughan quotes him as saying to a delegation of Swiss coming to speak with him, quote, Ha ha, have you come here to oppose my Lord of Burgundy? By Christ, you villains, you've got it coming to you. End quote. Ruth Putnam says, quote, Hagenbach took no pains to win their friendship. His insolent fashion of referring to them as fellows or rascals added to acts of aggression, unchecked if not condoned by him, 
aroused bitter dislike to him in the Confederated Cantons and in their allies. End quote. Those allies included towns that flanked the Rhine as it flowed from the Alps down into the Alsace region, namely Basel, Mulhaus, Tarn, Enzisheim, Preisach, Selestadt, Colmar, and Strasbourg. Soon after his appointment as governor in 1470, Strasbourg, a city with a strong worker and artisanal presence, was due to have an election for a new city administrator. Von Hagenbach wrote to them, telling them not to bother with it. Quote, We will come in person to give you one, who will be neither a butcher, nor a baker, nor a ribbon merchant. You will have the honour of having for chief the noblest of princes, the Duke of Burgundy himself. End quote. What's a ribbon merchant, and how do I get a job? When von Hagenbach began threatening to take another town, Mulhouse, into Burgundian protection, it resulted in an historic meeting in Basel in June 1470. At this meeting, the Swiss Eidgenossen, as well as other members of the imperial nobility of the region and representatives of the towns Basel, Celestat, Colmar and Strasbourg, took the first steps towards forming a general alliance against Burgundian expansion into the area. With this support, Mulhouse stood firm against the Burgundians. Over the next few years, ever-shifting proposals and counter-proposals were made, but these towns were clearly angling towards getting rid of the hated von Hagenbach and the Burgundians and bringing back Sigismund. Sigismund, for his part, was open to any and every idea. In 1472, he was talking to the Swiss about having peace with them and figuring out ways to pay the mortgage and repossess his lands, while simultaneously trying to convince Charles that they should team up and go attack the Swiss together with a joint Austro-Burgundian army. But Charles was too busy fighting with Louis XI at that point and wasn't really interested in dealing with those pesky Swiss. In early 1473, von Hagenbach's financial situation became dire enough that he decided to break the promise Charles had made to not introduce arbitrary new taxes on the towns in Alsace. He brought in a new tax on wine, which became known as the Bad Penny. With his catchy I Spy slogan, von Hagenbach must have known how politically and socially unstable the region was becoming, that an alliance was being formed against him and his master, and that many towns would refuse to pay this tax. But still, he insisted on collecting it, when a group of towns predictably refused to pay, von Hagenbach brought the Burgundian military down on some of them and in standard fashion had a few leading officials publicly executed. He tried once more to occupy the town of Mulhaus, but again they denied him entry. So as Charles was wrapping up his campaign in Helders that we went into in the previous episode in the summer of 1473, tensions were beginning to boil over in Upper Alsace. In that previous episode, we mentioned how after Charles finished taking over Helders, he abandoned further plans to invade Friesland because of three distractions, one of which was to go meet the Emperor, Czech. Another of those distractions was the death of the Duke of Lorraine. Lorraine was vitally important to Charles simply because it lay right in between his southern French domains and his northern Low Country one. When the Duke of Lorraine, Nicholas of Anjou, died on July 27, 1473, at the tender age of 25, well that's kind of like middle age back then, a lot of suspicion was aroused. 
with some claiming that he had been poisoned by Louis XI. Since the Duke had no children, his aunt, Yolanda, inherited his lands, but she immediately abdicated in favour of her son, 22-year-old René. Given the strategic location of Lorraine, both Louis XI, the French king, and Charles the Bold, his enemy, entered into negotiations with the new Duke, each trying to woo him into their own sphere of influence. But due to the pro-Burgundian sentiment of many in Lorraine, in October 1473, René ultimately signed a military pact with Charles, which was mostly aimed at thwarting French aggression. The two agreed to allow the other's armies to move through their territory, a vitally important deal for Charles given that he had to be able to move troops between his northern and southern domains. On top of this, young René agreed to appoint captains who were loyal to the Burgundian cause into castles, which were located along the important routes that Charles's armies would use. In contrast to the usual image of him as a conquering hero, here we see Charles using diplomacy to get what he wanted. In December 1473, he passed through the capital of Lorraine, Nancy, or Nancy, and met up with René, no doubt wanting to impress his new young ally and to ensure that matters in Lorraine would remain favourable long term. After that, Charles moved on to Alsace, no doubt to show that he was there to stay. Whilst in Alsace, he met with Swiss emissaries who complained about the threatening language von Hagenbach was constantly directing towards them, and he made sure to receive oaths of loyalty from people wherever he went. After this, in January 1474, Charles made the bold move of actually going to Burgundy to make the necessary pledges of mutual love and fealty between himself and his subjects there as Duke. By this time, he had already held the title Duke of Burgundy for six years, and that he had not yet done this shows just how much the Low Countries had usurped his southern French domains in terms of their importance to that title holder, Duke of Burgundy. Whilst in Burgundy, Charles also received ambassadors from Sigismund. Charles had learned that Sigismund had been in talks with Louis XI, trying to get him to help negotiate peace terms between himself and the Swiss. Charles was not at all happy that Sigismund had secretly been talking to his biggest enemy, and he let his displeasure be known. According to Richard Vaughan, by the beginning of 1474, the alliance between Sigismund and Charles, between Austria and Burgundy, was no more, and from here things began to move quite quickly. On the 27th of March 1474, representatives of Sigismund, the Alsatian towns, and the Swiss Confederation met at a place called Constance. They had been engaged in nearly four years of protracted and difficult talks and produced a set of different accords. One was called the Ewiger Richtung, which created a peace in perpetuity between Austria and Switzerland. Another declared that all of Sigismund's mortgaged lands would be removed from Burgundian control, with the towns deciding to pay Sigismund's mortgage themselves, having decided that actually, yeah, the Austrians weren't so bad after all, compared with the Burgundians at least. Finally, they also agreed to a 10-year defensive pact between them all. Although the role he played in its creation seems to be limited, Louis XI must have been rubbing his hands with glee. 
This mishmash alliance directed against Burgundy between the Austrian Duke, the Swiss Confederation, and the towns of the Upper Alsace became known as the League of Constance. All of these events in themselves might not have spelled doom for Burgundian pretensions in Upper Alsace, were it not for the reputation earned by Peter von Hagenbach. Not only was he violent and a tax collector, but he was also widely seen as a sexual predator. At a time in which sexual predation was culturally rampant by our modern standards, many of the stories about him may be chalked up as political slander, were it not for the fact that most have been substantiated by multiple sources. One of them, Johann Knebel, a clergyman from Basel, really went to town recounting how von Hagenbach had gone about upsetting more than a few people. Quote, He had overwhelmed by force and against their will many married women, maidens, even nuns, and had done the same things against God, justice, and all honesty. End quote. There is no doubt that von Hagenbach was an unsavory character who could be fairly described with far harsher words than that. He was also clearly a pervert. Vaughn relates one story, quote, Before a banquet organized by himself at Breisach on the 20th of February 1474, he had the pubic hair of his wife and three noble women shaved off and given to his cook to pulverize and then sprinkle on the dishes served to the ladies. On one occasion, von Hagenbach made his wife publicly exhibit her pudenda and tell the assembled company how many times he had intercourse with her on their wedding night. End quote. Without meaning to limit the trauma that might have been endured by the women who went through this, imagine being a cook in the Middle Ages and being given the task to pulverize pubic hair. Imagine being at the table when the dinner was served and the waiter comes up and asks, would you like some salt? Cracked pepper? Pulverized pubic hair? Von Hagenbach could feel the air of dissent that was growing strongly within the Alsace region and he was its prime target. So he remained in Breisach, seemingly well fortified against any military offensives they might make to get rid of him. But Von Hagenbach was undone because Charles had not given him enough money to pay his troops. On Easter Sunday, 1474, unhappy soldiers in Breisach went into mutiny, supported by the outraged and aggrieved local citizens. Some stories indicate that the rebellion was incited in much the same way as during Charles's joyous entry in Ghent. Von Hagenbach had prohibited a local Easter tradition from taking place, making the citizens go absolutely bonkers against the occupying forces who had remained loyal. As Putnam tells us, quote, the citizens lashed themselves into a state of fury, fell upon the mercenaries, and killed many of them in spite of their own unarmed condition. End quote. The end product of the lashed fury was that von Hagenbach was arrested and imprisoned. The city government re-established itself and aligned the town of Preisach with the League of Constance. They clearly were still not 100% convinced of which course of action to take, even sending an envoy to Charles trying to appease his inevitable wrath. Within the League of Constance, however, there was even greater pressure for the heinous bailiff to face his punishment, with little regard to what Charles might have felt about it. Shortly after all this went down, Charles received a rather flippant letter from Sigismund, 
informing him that, yeah, he's going to pay back his mortgage and retake control of the lands in the Upper Alsace, if you don't mind. Charles was unimpressed, to say the least. He saw this as a betrayal. In his response, he said, quote, If you shall adhere to the purpose you have declared, in violation of the terms of the contract and of your princely word, we shall make resistance, trusting with God's help that our ability in defense shall not prove inferior to what we have used to repulse the attacks of the Swiss. Those attacks from which you sought and received our protection. End quote. Sigismund, however, maintained his course. Alongside his former foes, now allies, the Swiss Eidgenossen and the Alsatian towns, he appointed his own bailiff to replace von Hagenbach and effectively took control of Upper Alsace. On May 9th, 1474, Peter von Hagenbach was tried for a variety of crimes. He was accused of illegally executing three women in the town of Tann after putting down an uprising there the year before. In Preisach, he had given his word that he would not defy aspects of the town's liberties and then broke it, abolishing guilds, tampering with the judicial system and bringing foreign soldiers to garrison within the town walls. He was also tried for allegedly plotting to use those foreign troops to murder the citizens of Breisach, and finally, also for the acts of sexual assault for which he had been accused. The trial was the biggest event in the region at the time, and people came from far and wide to see the man meet the punitive fate that his depraved infamy had led him to. He claimed having been only following the orders given to him by Charles the Bold, and flat out denied the more scandalous allegations of sex crimes leveled against him. As much as von Hagenbach was obviously a brutish man who had committed many atrocities, the trial was still not a fair one. The outcome was set in stone before it began. Despite all this, it is often cited as being the first case in history of somebody being tried for, essentially, war crimes, and where the legal defense of, but I was just following orders, was rejected. Hence why we quoted that legal scholar earlier. After solicitations of reprieve were rebuffed by the court, which was run wholly by the League of Constance, Peter von Hagenbach was brought before the crowd and had his head promptly cut off. Burgundian rule of Upper Alsace was, for all intents and purposes, over. Charles the Bold's graph of power had been on a steady incline upwards for nearly 10 years, He had relied on his profound belief in a God-given right to rule, on the hefty taxing power of Burgundian administration, and a willingness to throw his army around against the French and against dissident people of the Low Countries when and where he saw fit. With this turn of events in the Alsace, however, that graph showed its first significant drop. Basically, his decision to expand towards the Alps brought him to a cliff. It's going to be a black diamond piece for Charlie Boy from here on in. Does that work? Skiing metaphors are not really my thing. In case you hadn't noticed, I'm Australian and I live in the Netherlands. First of those places doesn't really have snow, and the second doesn't really have mountains. Regardless, although this headfirst plunge towards his demise would not be a total free fall, it definitely began with the execution of von Hagenbach, and the loss of Upper Alsace. This might not have been the case if Charles had ceded the loss, tipped his hat at Sigismund for having 
successfully engineered his way out of their contract and returned to the Burgundian realm to rule in peace and comfort. This, however, was not Charles's way. Already before the trial of von Hagenbach, he had been trying to make strategic alliances, pledging to each prospective ally that he would get his own back on Sigismund or die trying. As the spring of 1474 turned into summer, it seemed that his main focus would be to retake the Alsace. But before getting to that, we are going to see Charles once again try to crush a rebellion in a nearby Prince Bishopric. But this time, it will not be so nice. See you on the other side of this ad break. Welcome to Ruch. Welcome back. So, the third and final distraction that had stopped Charles from invading Friesland after finishing campaigning in Helders was that the Prince Bishop of Cologne, Ruprecht, had arrived at his camp complaining about rebellious subjects. The Burgundian dukes had been trying to meddle with affairs in nearby Cologne for already more than a decade. Philip the Good's approach towards it had been similar to the one he had taken in Utrecht and in Liège, appoint a puppet, make sure that they owe you for their continued life and rule, and then slowly infiltrate the administrative system of the territory with people who were favourable to you. But this had not exactly worked in Cologne, because the church chapter and estates there did not bend to Philip the Good's suggestions and instead elected their own person, the aforementioned Ruprecht. They quickly came to regret this choice, however, because Ruprecht turned out to be a shocking ruler, and soon the power brokers of the bishopric were trying to curtail his dominion. A great rift arose between the bishop and his subject, and Ruprecht beseeched Charles for help in 1467. Charles was busy dealing with Liège at the time, so instead sent a haughty letter to the Cologne chapter and the town's burghers, telling them to behave themselves. This sent them off the rails. They refused, became even less enamoured with old Roop, sent an angry letter to the Pope, and took over the nearby town of Noyce in contempt of the bishop. The rebellious chapter was joined by a local noble called Hermann von Hesse, who organised and led the town's defence. A stalemate ensued, which would continue until 1474, as everybody waited to see what the Pope would do, and what the Emperor would do, and what Charles would do. Cologne was one of the topics discussed heavily between Frederick and Charles at their meeting in Trier. In Charles's new role as the Duke of Helders, the Bishopric of Cologne, which was known as the Stift, was now neighbouring territory to his realm, and therefore even more important to his prospects of further expansion. After Frederick hastily left Trier, he went to Cologne, ostensibly to act as a final arbiter in the conflict. Frederick, however, despite having the honour of being the longest reigning Holy Roman Emperor, was definitely not the best at the job and had trouble making firm decisions on tough matters. He did not have the strength of will that would have forced a resolution, and as the winter went on, did not issue a decision either way. Charles, on the other hand, despite lacking many qualities, definitely did not lack strength of will. In December 1473, only three weeks after the emperor had dashed his hopes for a crown, 
and or a step up on the imperial ladder, Charles had a manifesto distributed. In this, he declared that the cause of Ruprecht was the only just cause in this matter, and that the chapters and the estates of Cologne must cede to his authority without question. Charles arranged to be made the guardian of Cologne. Sometime in the early spring of 1474, he formally took the position as the protector of Cologne for life. He would swing the axe on the rebelling towns on behalf of Ruprecht, and in return, Ruprecht would pay him a huge sum of money. This was good for Charles, because as we mentioned earlier, he was starting to run into financial issues. He had a lot of military endeavours to undertake, and these required troops, supplies, and equipment, all of which cost a lot of cash. To put this all as simply as we can, because of the ongoing threat that Charles faced from Louis XI of France, Charles had been forced to change the way his army was composed. Previously, the Burgundian dukes had generally relied on getting troops for each campaign in the standard way of calling out people who were feudally obliged to fight, as well as the militias from the towns throughout his domains. In general, Charles recruited more soldiers from his southern lands, such as Burgundy and Picardy, whereas he relied more on the northern areas like Flanders and Holland for the money to pay for them and to buy necessary military equipment. As we have seen many times already, after campaigning was over, those armies would disband and the people in them would disperse back to wherever it was they had come from to go back to doing their regular jobs like farming or baking or fulling, fulling standing around in a bucket of whey better than an army. Because of the ongoing conflict with Louis, however, in 1469, Charles began to change the nature of his army structure. The French king had a permanent force of soldiers at his disposal, which Charles was probably a bit jealous of and decided he needed to emulate. Remember that Louis was constantly watching what was going on over in the Burgundian lands, and whenever Charles seemed to be busy somewhere else, he would launch attacks, spreading Charles's military thin. So Charles created so-called companies of ordnance, which were basically volunteer mercenaries from all over the continent, many of whom came from Italy, England, and the German states. One of the big issues the Swiss took with Charles was the fact that groups of Italian mercenaries would be constantly crossing over the mountains to fight in his armies. It took a few years, but between 1471 and 74, Charles gradually managed to bring more and more companies of ordnance into the field, effectively changing his army from being one composed mainly of conscripted subjects from his territories to a standing army with a large portion of foreign professional fighters. But the thing about professional armies is that they need to be paid or they tend to get mutinous, and to pay them Charles needed money. Up until 1470, taxation in the Low Country domains had been done through negotiations between the Duke and the different estates of the individual territories, with these discussions happening annually. In May 1470, however, Charles took the first step towards changing this by asking for a total expenditure of 120,000 crowns per year for a period of three years instead of just one. When the estates of Flanders responded to this request by complaining about the fact that they were being asked to pay more than the southern French lands had been and asking for clarifications about why, Charles responded with characteristic 
pomposity. Quote, You act as you have always done, you Flemings. Neither to my father nor to me have you ever been liberal. What you have granted, sometimes more than our request, has always been given so tardily as to prove the lack of goodwill. Your Flemish skulls are hard and thick, and you cling to your stubborn and perverse opinions. End quote. He definitely wasn't the most gracious guy going around asking for money, and his words no doubt added to the Flemish unwillingness to pay it. But Charles went on to point out that he needed the money not only for his defence, but for theirs too, and eventually the Flemish agreed, and the money was handed over. In 1473, Charles took another step towards this financial centralisation by commanding the Estates General of his Northern Territories to meet with him in Brussels, where he got them to collectively agree to a six-year taxation plan. Instead of organising the payments on a territory-by-territory basis, now the negotiations were all done at once. This time, however, instead of asking for 120,000 crowns per year, Charles demanded 500,000 crowns per year, a huge increase and definitely much more than they had ever been asked to pay in the past. Remember that these payments weren't distributed evenly between the provinces. Rich Flanders would be asked to pay more than relatively poor Burgundy. But still, places in Flanders and Holland were being asked to pay up to three to six times more money than they had previously. We'll get more into this in a later episode, but as you can probably tell, this huge increase in taxation was extremely unpopular, and the discontent this sowed would lead to backlash. But still, here we see Charles also making the first attempts to centralise taxation in the Low Countries. Not long after, he did the same with his southern domains. So with this financing and the establishment of a permanent fighting force in the spring of 1474, Charles clearly felt he was in a position to deal with Cologne and Upper Alsace. First, however, he had to figure out a way of keeping that pesky Louis XI off his back. And he did this by devising a simple and secret plan to get England to invade France. As you do. In June 1474, Charles signed a one-year peace treaty with Louis, which would last until the 1st of May 1475. At the same time, however, his half-brother Anthony, the bastard of Burgundy, was negotiating on his behalf an audacious plan to recognise Edward IV, the King of England, as the true King of France. We've heard this story before. Charles was married to Edward's sister, Margaret of York, and had previously given him protection in Flanders when he was briefly ousted from the English throne in 1470, as part of their ongoing civil war known as the War of the Roses. Boring. Yeah, terrible ending. The next year, Charles had given Edward troops and ships and sent him back across the sea to reclaim his crown. By the terms of the Treaty of London, which was signed on the 25th of July, 1474, Charles would once again provide troops, and Edward agreed that he would invade France by the 1st of July, 1475, just after the aforementioned peace treaty between Charles and Louis XI expired. In case you are lost here, Charles's military ambitions had basically grown so grandiose that he was, in essence, trying to restart the Hundred Years' War as a diversionary tactic so that he could subjugate Cologne, punish treacherous Alsace, and keep France busy for, hopefully, 
another hundred years. With all of this in motion, Charles sent word around that he was going into Cologne to make the rebels finally accept Ruprecht as their bishop. He would do this by laying siege to Neuss, the town where many rebellious elements of the Cologne bishopric had installed themselves, alongside Hermann von Hesse. At the same time as he did this, Charles banned all trade on the Rhine with towns further up the river in Alsace and Switzerland, no doubt expecting that he would waltz into Cologne, quash this revolt quickly, and then bring his armies up the river and do the same thing to the Alsatian towns. But unfortunately for Charles, that was not going to be the case. Helas Bindicas. Speaking of which, why not let that bring us to today's installment of Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch? Despite what you might be told, the Dutch language is extremely creative and quirky. It's filled with all sorts of funny little expressions, which when translated into English directly are quite frankly hilarious. One of them is Helas Pindakas, which sort of means too bad, but which translates directly into unfortunately peanut butter. It's generally used by kids or their parents, everyone really, in a jovial way to say that's too bad about little things which have gone wrong. It's definitely only a saying because it rhymes. It makes no other sense otherwise, which is somewhat of a bummer because, quite frankly, and this is straight from the source, registering reactions with condiments is great fun, and I'm keen as mustard to do it more often. Not being able to relish in doing so really rubs salt into the wound. Okay, okay, okay. I may have to stop now. You might be thinking this was a bit of a nothing segment. Oh well. He last pinned a cuss. At least it gave us all a chance to catch up. Unfortunately, peanut butter. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Days after the siege of Neuss began, at the end of July 1474, other major towns in the Prince Bishopric of Cologne, namely Bonn, Andernach, Arweiler, and the city of Cologne itself, threw their support behind Neuss and joined the rebellion against Ruprecht and now Charles. And then just a few days after that, the Emperor Frederick III, who less than a year before had ceremoniously invested Charles with the Duchy of Gelders, also declared war on Burgundy and began assembling a coalition and army of his own to come to the aid of the rebellious people of Cologne. This was a stunning turn of events, and a flurry of correspondence between Frederick and Charles ensued. Frederick's disposition towards his vassal is betrayed in a letter that began, quote, Frederick, by the grace of God, Emperor of the Romans, etc., to Charles, Prince and Duke of Burgundy. Greetings, if you deserve any. End quote. It's harsh from Fred. Indeed, whatever amicable relations they had shared in Trier now seemed to be a thing of the past. In fact, the acrimony that Charles's brazen and arrogant aggression tended to sow was now spreading beyond manageable bounds. That is to say, almost everybody hated him. Charles was renowned for his fascination in military stratagem, and we've already seen how he had successfully besieged many other cities. Yet, despite intense strategic bombardment and even managing to break through the odd gate, he could not break noise. A Burgundian who was present, Jean Balgui, said that in September, quote, 
The Colonos sent a man to Noise swimming in the Rhine to take letters to the town in a wooden bottle, instructing the Noises to hold firm as the Emperor was coming to attack the Duke. End quote. Winter came and went. By the end of March 1475, it was clear that this was very far from a simple affair. A Milanese ambassador to Charles's court, who was also present at the siege, reported back to his lord, quote, This undertaking at Noyce is a difficult thing, and, according to people expert in the art of war, it will take a long time to have it by force. The place is strong in its sight, and because of the river, it is well defended, with perhaps over 3,000 stout defenders within it, with good artillery, end quote. Despite having so many stout defenders within it, the situation inside Noyce was also getting difficult. The besieged people took to attaching messages to cannonballs, trying to shoot them out beyond the attacker's reach. Many of these were intercepted while some reached their destination. One of them, written by Hermann von Hesse, the guy organizing the defense, and directed to his brother Heinrich, indicates that the town was reaching the limits of what the people within could bear. Quote, Unless we are relieved soon and powerfully and with the utmost expedition, we are bound to report to you that we shall suffer a complete disaster. We know no one to appeal to except the Almighty God. We request you, through your love and honor in affection and obedience, not to allow our misery to become worse than we have described to you. And if no relief comes in the above-mentioned time, then we want to undertake discussions in order to avoid losing our lives and goods, end quote. By discussions, he means negotiating for surrender. Frederick III, the emperor, was an expert at procrastination and not taking a path that would demand any resolute action. The coalition army he had brought together was approaching very, very, very slowly. As Vaughan puts it, quote, Frederick himself can scarcely be said to have demonstrated any real enthusiasm for the task, though one must make allowances for the fact that his movements, if that be not too grand a word to describe his intermittent ambling pace, were hampered by his desperate financial situation. An embassy from Cologne had to bail him out of his difficulties. The nearer he approached to Noyce in the spring of 1475, the more protracted were his delays, and the shorter his day's marches, end quote. Frederick also set into motion counterintelligence plans designed to destabilize Charles on his home front. Agents and messengers were sent into the low countries, yeah, the area this podcast is actually meant to be about, and set about encouraging rebellion and inciting anti-Burgundian sentiment, which wasn't that hard given the financial pressure they were all starting to feel. Frederick also began negotiating an alliance between himself and the French king, known as the Treaty of Andernach, which was signed in December 1474 and then reconfirmed in April 1475. In this treaty, they agreed that they would both attack Charles at the same time. It's that classic move, East Francia and West Francia attacking Middle Francia. By this time, Charles had made many enemies who saw the time and resource expenditure he was wasting on besieging Noyce and decided to take advantage of it by declaring war on him. Scores of vagrant rebels who had been exiled from lands Charles had subdued roamed in and around Burgundian territories. 
One of these was a man with an awesome nickname, the Wild Boar of the Ardennes. He made his way to Cologne, where over the winter of 1474-75, he managed to hook up with our old mate, Race de Lintra, the former rebel leader of Liège. Together they set about attacking and raiding parts of Luxembourg and Liège. The Swiss also took the opportunity to declare war on Burgundy in late October 1474. They attacked the French Comte, the imperial part of Burgundy, and killed 1,600 Burgundian Allied troops at the Battle of Hericourt, which was apparently one of the first battles in history to be fought with handguns. Then in April 1475, Louis XI and Frederick III were able to pressure the young Duke of Lorraine, René, who, remember, had previously signed an alliance with Charles into flipping against him. They promised him that if Lorraine joined the Treaty of Andernach and declared war on Burgundy, that they wouldn't sign any separate peace treaties with Burgundy. They were all in it together. When the peace treaty between France and Burgundy expired on the 1st of May, 1475, Louis launched an all-out three-pronged attack. His troops ravaged across the Somme towns and into the Low Countries, pushing up into Artois and Hanau, wreaking havoc and destruction. Off the coast of Zeeland, a French ship attacked and captured a bunch of fishermen from Amsterdam and then raided up the Dutch coast as far as Amsterdam and Tessel. On the 6th of May, Frederick finally decided to leave the city of Cologne and bring his army up to Neuss itself. On the 9th of May, an ambassador from René of Lorraine passed on the declaration of war to Charles. Quote, To thee, Charles of Burgundy, in behalf of the very high, etc., Duke of Lorraine, my seigneur, I announce defiance with fire and blood against thee, thy countries, thy subjects, thy allies, and other charge further have I not. End quote. Charles responded to this news of defiance via fire and blood by giving the ambassador a fine robe and saying, quote, Tell your master that I shall soon be in his lands, and the greatest fear I have is not to find him there. End quote. They're pretty bold words from a man who just spent a year bogged down unsuccessfully laying siege to the rather insignificant town of Noyce and was currently getting attacked by basically everybody. Eventually, the combination of all of this put enough pressure on Charles to abandon the siege. Noyce never was relieved, per se, but neither did Charles ever succeed in bringing it to his obedience. It is clear that neither Charles nor Frederick really wanted to take the field against each other, but they also definitely didn't want to be the first person to blink and back down from the fight. Their honour and prestige simply demanded otherwise. A papal legate, which as we know was an extremely frustrating position to fill, was sent in to negotiate matters and told them both that they would be excommunicated if they didn't disengage. By the end of May, Charles, Ruprecht, the chapters of Cologne and the Emperor managed to agree to terms, which would see Charles give up the protectorship of Cologne and cede Neuss to neutral hands, which is to say, to Vatican control. Frederick spent a whole two seconds hesitating about whether or not he should break his promise to Louis XI and René, the Duke of Lorraine, that he wouldn't negotiate a separate peace, and then did it anyway. There is no doubt that the siege of Neuss was a failure for Charles. 
He had wasted a year at the cost of huge sums of money and a not insignificant amount of soldiers. His being there had provided his enemies with the opportunity to attack him on different fronts. This led to the Swiss beating a Burgundian army at the Battle of Hericourt, to the French rampaging spear-first into the Low Countries and denying him a chance to quickly recapture his lost territories in Upper Alsace. But things weren't necessarily terminal for Charles, nor indeed Burgundy at this point. The arrival of an immense English invasion force in Calais, which he had organised, as well as that promise he made to the ambassador of Lorraine that he would soon be coming to meet the Duke of Lorraine personally, offered an opportunity for him to begin redeeming his fortunes. But for us, with the benefit of hindsight, we can safely say that the murder of Peter von Hagenbach in Alsace and the failure of Charles at the Siege of Neuss were just the first in a series of misfortunes which would very shortly mark the end of Charles the Bold and of the entire Burgundian state. Helas Pindakas. Thanks very much for listening to History of the Netherlands. We have been really loving all the correspondence as well as the amazing messages of support that we have received from amidst you lovely people. We especially loved hearing from our Patreon subscribers, several of whom wrote to us to say how much they enjoyed the bonus episode, The Last Gasp of the Ligeois, that we made just for them. You can hear it if you go to patreon.com slash historyofthenetherlands and sign up to be ordained within the illustrious order of the Golden Patreon Pledge. As a member of the order, you get honor, prestige, and the knowledge that you literally help keep this show going and stop me from having to find a job in a warehouse. Speaking of jobs, now is the time to reel off the latest members of our esteemed order, starting with Job Mance, or Job, or Jobbers as we call him. He feared that we had missed his name and wasn't going to be included, but little does Jobbers realize that the only thing more honorable than our order is chronological order. So now it is his time, and so shall we all bask in the glory of Job. Next up in chronological order comes two people who, like Napoleon or Madonna, Prince or Cher, only require one name. The first is Martin. Although having only one name is fine, we are quite fond of giving out new ones, so from henceforth he shall be known as Martin the Spartan. The second is Olaf. He'll make you a laugh. He'll make you a cry, but in the end, he's oh so fly, Olaf. Finally, we induct Mehmet Baran, the only person who, as far as we can tell, loves late medieval urban financial policies more than we do. Memmers, good on you, mate. We love your passion, and we know you suggested that we do the history of Germany one day. That is unlikely, but we hope that this episode scratched that German itch for you somewhat. Follow us on Twitter at History of NL to get updated on what obscure sporting events we are currently watching, banter, and sometimes the odd piece of Dutch history. That's all. Until next time, stay safe, wear a mask, and vote. Dui. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. 
This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.